Dr. Ethel Tunkohan, an Associate Professor of Politics at York University. This is Academic Antis. As you know, I had a chance to spend some time in the UK and the Netherlands during my sabbatical last spring. One of the benefits of having this opportunity was that I was able to see firsthand how there are other ways of being in academia. As an academic based in Canada, it's easy to assume that academic norms are the same everywhere. The corrosive expectations surrounding productivity are universal, given austerity measures universities worldwide are facing. So when I was talking to colleagues in the Netherlands, I was immediately surprised and quite frankly, inspired when I heard about how there seems to be a better work-life balance among researchers there. For example, there isn't the expectation that people respond to emails in the summer. I know, this completely blows me away. Also, PhD students there receive far better funding than PhD students in North America, which gives them a measure of economic stability. I was also incredibly inspired to learn about initiatives prioritizing slow scholarship through journals like Migration Politics, which gives scholars a space to share ideas and to write papers more intentionally. Of course, I don't mean to idealize the Dutch Academy. There are certainly challenges there too. Challenges of cultural adjustment, of crossing borders and getting status, and even of different expectations for international scholars moving into a new country for their jobs. And to talk about all of this, we have Dr. Kichi Sagan. In our chat, we talk about his experiences moving from the Philippines to Singapore to the US and to the Netherlands across his academic journey. Kichi was probably the person who I loved meeting the most in my trip abroad. We're both Filipino and we bonded over shared research and shared stories of travel and fish out of water cultural moments. Enjoy. With us today is the amazing Dr. Kichi Sagin. And we met over dinner and we just had such a good time. And, you know, we talked a lot about international norms and international scholarship and cultural difference that I thought, why not have him come on? So, hi, Tito Kichi. How are you? Hi, Tita Ethel. So happy to be here. It's such a privilege. Awesome. Do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I am Kaji. I'm currently an assistant professor in public policy and governance at the Department of Political Science here at the University of Amsterdam. I was born and raised in the Philippines. Uh, <laughs> yay. And uh, I did my PhD in Singapore and somehow found my way here in Amsterdam. So you have been based in so many different institutions. You were born in the Philippines, but then you went to Singapore for your PhD. Then now you're in Amsterdam. Can you talk to us a little bit about your academic journey? How did you get to Amsterdam? Were you always going to be a professor? <laughs> uh, short or long answer. Um, I'll, I'll go for the long answer. I think, I think my, <laughs> my academic career is something that is really shaped by role models, I think. I came from a family of educators. My brother teaches at the University of the Philippines. My father teaches building technology in a local university. And so they were my natural role models. But for some reason, their impact on me is a little different in the sense that I actively avoided being an academic. Because I, I was very 
aware of the, the difficulties of being an academic in the Philippines. It's it's really very yeah. teaching heavy. Uh, you tend it's really public service. You're not paid much. And I also wanted to avoid sharing the space with my family. I, yeah. I don't know if it's an Asian thing, but <laughs> I, I feel like I don't want to be compared to my brother as a, as an academic. And so I actively avoided it by actually going to the government. So I worked for the government <sighs> for seven full years. And yeah. I knew from the very start that I wanted to do grad school. Right. Uh, I mean, mainly because of this idea of knowledge in our family being sort of favored more than, you know, income. Uh, my family yeah. is not traditionally rich, but I think we're rich in knowledge. Like we, yeah. our, our family uh, activity is playing Scrabble. So oh. <laughs> we're, we're, we're a bunch of nerds. Uh, <laughs> and I, I remember working with one of my bosses who I really admired and she w- went to Singapore for her grad school. And so oh. when, when I, I did this work in the government, I knew that I wanted to go to Singapore to study. Uh, oh. It took me twice to apply to get into Singapore. First, I was told I didn't have the experience. So I, I did another three years in the government. So after seven years of working, I applied again for me to get in and get a scholarship. I, I, I could Amazing. never afford to go out of the Philippines without any scholarship. And that's why I decided to stay in Singapore because Singapore is really a place where uh, they would put in resources to people who who likes ambition in some ways yeah. and uh, who wants to really achieve many many things. So uh, that's sort of like uh, is really where, where my work role model comes from comes in and it's like inspiring me to to go to Singapore. And Amazing. I think my my third role model is really. When I chose to stay in Singapore to do my PhD, I was working as a full-time RA in the school, uh, and I actually lost my job like three months in. So, you know, as as someone who doesn't have, uh, you know, a full-time permanent contract, like so visa-wise, I was asked to leave Singapore within one month. (gasps) That's when when my future supervisor came in, and and so I asked him, um, uh, Ramesh, I don't have a job. Can you look? for a job for me and hire me as an RA. And so he did. And so I was sort of like, I really enjoyed working with him and I see him as sort of like this uh, academic grandfather. So I decided to stay on in Singapore and did my PhD there. And eventually, like, I think I found a fourth role model in terms of looking for careers. I think as as an international scholar, it's less about like dream jobs in in, many ways. But more on like the practical side of it, like where can I get a job? Uh, yes. and, and I think during the time I was applying, applied for twelve jobs. I, w- I was grateful enough to get two offers, and I decided to take a chance in Amsterdam, mainly because uh, my my supervisors were suggesting for me to to come here. So that's how Amazing. I, that's a long answer to your question, Ethel. No, and I think that kind of points and that signals to the important role that mentors play in our academic journey. People who kind of advocate for you, people who at crucial moments in your career and in your immigration trajectory can intervene and say, listen, um, do your PhD here. Like your mentor, was it Ramesh, you said? Who, it was Ramesh, yeah. So... You have been in the Philippines, then Singapore, then Amsterdam. That's a lot of moving. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) 
What have been your experiences when it comes to transitioning into these different academic spaces with different kind of academic norms and I guess cultural norms as well? Like, are there key differences that pop out? What's interesting, at least in, in sort of the academic culture that I can see in, in Singapore and, and uh, the Netherlands, I think that the two clear contrasts in terms of values here is like Singapore is very competitive. It rewards... Competitive this kind of you, you aim for the star kind of attitude. I, I also went to, to the U.S. And in the U.S., one of the most memorable advice I got was you should be your own champion. And it's really mm. this kind of le- leaning on the individualism that I can see in, in uh, U.S. academia uh, mm. is that in, in order for you to thrive, you need to be the best in one aspect of academia. Uh, and that I see is a little different here in in the Netherlands. I think Netherlands ha, has is I would call developmental, uh, and and, and I, I come from the idea that like in my performance reviews, for example, it's really not about like why didn't you meet your targets? Why didn't you do this? When it's you know what can we do to help you to become the best you can be? And I feel really? like that's yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's like, it was like and then that's coming so from nurturing. I know coming from <laughs> Singapore, it's like. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I don't need to give a lot. It's like it's really what I want to do now this year that matters. If if I want to be more chill and like be more family oriented, I can do that. It's like so. It's really because of a, a different kind of individualism that I can see in the U.S. and very different from the competitiveness in Singapore. Wow. Okay. So the Netherlands is not about okay. Well, you know, how many publications have you produced, and why are they not in top ranked journals? It's more like. All right, let's let's see what we can do to support you. That's that's I'm just kind of nodding my head and clapping my hands. I mean, that that's a different ethos to academia. That's a different ethos when it comes to community mindedness, right? Are there other differences in terms of work culture that you've noticed um, in in the Netherlands yeah. as opposed to your other spaces? I think it's it's very clearly because it's largely developmental, like there's no rush to things. I think there, there. I had this discussion with my colleague from Singapore, who's now based also here in the Netherlands, and he, he was saying that there's no sense of urgency in, in the Netherlands. And I think it m- makes sense. I think you can tie that the idea of being developmental to the lack of urgency. So, for for, for example, uh, I've been thinking about like why don't people respond to emails? Emails. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So it, it's it's something that I really is very perplexing. I couldn't understand because my ethos is really to respond within one day. It's like that's my my ethics in Singapore. Within one day, I should respond to an email. But here, people don't respond to emails as regularly. Sometimes you have to follow up, and like for some, like for me as a Filipino, following up is actually sort of a burden you impose on other people. So, like, I don't necessarily see it as, a, as important or uh, as a marker that it's more urgent. But here, following up is a marker of urgency. You need uh... to follow up because if it's important to you, then it's urgent. Then they need to respond to it. And I've experienced this when I was organizing a workshop. Like, I invited, I think, 10 Dutch scholars. None of them replied. At least one replied. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so, I said, like, because I'm not really used to following up, mainly because I don't want it to be a burden on them, because I assume that people read emails. But it turns out, like, the, the story of decorum is that I should have followed up if I really want them what? to be in the workshop. 
That's part of the yeah. So which Talaga? is interesting. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And it's a fascinating sort of market. Like no one teaches you that. Like I only ask people, it's like, why don't people respond to my emails? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, one, they're busy. And two, if it's really important, you will follow up. And it's fascinating. It's like no one tells you this email etiquette beforehand. And this email etiquette is completely dependent on your contacts, right? Because for me, I kind of imbibe similar Filipino norms where I'm, I'm also like, well, if I follow up, that means I'm kind of imposing myself on them where they've already communicated through their non-response that that is the response. And I don't want to keep knocking on their door and kind of contribute to email overflow, right? But then what you're saying is that for folks there, it's like, well, you know, maybe if it's really urgent, you'll follow up. Like, you know, so it's not seen as a burden. It's actually seen as uh, it, it, it's it's more respectful. It's more respectful to follow up because then you're communicating your needs. And mm-hmm. I can contrast that with a lot of my North American colleagues. Uh, I've been collaborating with with a friend from Georgetown. And he says, like, oh, I know I, I, I needed you, I needed to send you a review, but I'm currently on my way to the hospital. Maybe <laughs> I can send it a mo- an hour after. And it's like, you don't need to send it. <laughs> You're literally sick. And, but, but here it's like, yeah, like two, three weeks, they won't respond to you. Sometimes they would, they would on, their, on their own volition, but usually you'd really have to follow up. So... On email, and that's kind of just because it's fascinating and we can transition to talking about other things. One thing I've noticed too, which some of my Dutch colleagues have said to me as well, is that there is an expectation, not an expectation, there is a norm that when term is off, right, when it's the summer, no one sends or responds to emails, right? And here in the Canadian context, and dare I say the North American context, if you don't respond to emails at all, right, during the summer, you're kind of being given the side eye. It's like, okay, like, you know, this is your job, right? Like you should be responding to emails, even when you have, say, for example, for some U.S. schools, you have a nine-month contract and technically you're not getting paid. That's still part of your job. Like, can you speak a little bit about kind of these differences when it comes to kind of, you know, when you're at rest versus when you're at work as seen through email protocol? Yeah, totally. Totally. One, one, one interesting observation that we recently found is that you cannot really put in uh, a leave request. In, in Singapore, mm-hmm. you, ha- you have like 24 days of leaves. Here, you just take it. You're, you're, oh. you're really, you can't tell your supervisor that I'll be away for two, three weeks, but you just take it. So there is. You don't a, have to a, like write a letter or like you, ask permission. No, no. <sighs> even in, in the system, you don't need, because. On the system, our leaves are zero. So it's like, why can't we take up a leave? Because you're just expect, if you need a break, take it. So they respect the break a lot That to the point that you, you just take whenever whenever you want it, whenever you need it. And they would respect it. To, like, and and the, the basic expectation here is to put in an auto-reply just to say when you're coming back. So okay. that that's the minimum expectation is that Tell them that you're not available through this okay. auto reply, and and it's really not expected for people to to respond. And 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 right now we're in the process of trying to coordinate grading. And if you tell them, oh, I'm gonna be off for two weeks, and no one's gonna really insist on that, like it means that you will not be available for grading. That's that's really it. They won't force you that this needs to be to be done. Someone else will have to do it here. So I think there's a huge respect for 
people taking breaks, people taking holidays, especially summer. Summer is the most sort of like July, August. You don't expect things to be done. You know, you know in the Philippines, you don't expect things to be done in December. <laughs> no. It's the same here. <laughs> I love yeah. it. No, that's fine. Yeah, no, and... As a side note, absolutely. In the Philippines, we sometimes would come back during the holidays for Christmas for our family and for, you know, family reunions and things like that. And yeah, I mean, the country shuts down like, I don't know, late November, like getting banking done. I'm like, you know, technically your office hours say you're open till five, but they're like, no, but ma'am. We have a Christmas party, like, like, and I'm like, but I need, I need to get this deposited. They're like, yeah, but nope, you know, nope, not but gonna yeah. happen. Not gonna happen. I love this. So you have become really adaptable. You're adjusting to all of these different norms. You're adjusting to these different expectations. Does it take you a long time to kind of? get the lay of the land, develop a social circle, understand what it's like to be a new space? Like, how does it feel like to be moving constantly? Or I guess now you've been in Amsterdam for for a few years now, but, you know, it just seems like you're immersed in different contexts and you're moving a lot. And, you know, I'm just curious to see what that's, what that's been like for you. So when I was a student, I was also moving a lot. So I went to Geneva, I went to Brazil, and... I feel like being a student versus being you know, a professional working academic are two different work to get all together. Because I think the being a student, you have a natural social circle. You know, just mm-hmm. by being a student, so you sort of relate to with each other. But that's completely different, apparently, in, in being an academic. You don't necessarily share a lot of things. Like you need to really invest on that friendship. And that's mm. been the challenge, I think, moving to the Netherlands. One thing that I really did was to invest on looking for uh, people that I think can be part of my community. So in mm. each step uh, of this career trajectory, I need to create my own community. You, you can't really just rely on the pre-existing communities. And one of the communities that I created for for my own sake is really uh, the Philippine academic community here in the Netherlands. So we're Love slowly it. building this community. I started with uh, academics at UVA, mainly because it's something that I can relate, like issues that we can talk about, it's immigration, for example, being an international scholar. These are automatic issues and we don't have to talk in English. We have to talk in um, in Tagalog, which makes yeah. it easier. So I think I think being an international scholar coming in, you want to look for things that make it easier for you to settle in. And for me, creating this kind of like individual social circle that I can easily relate with is very important. I think part of the benefit of joining UVA, the University of Amsterdam, is like there was a massive hire of about more than 10 international uh, assistant professors. And that sort of like this kind of mirrors this student experience where you have automatic friends and that we've become Mm. automatic friends. And I think this really helped a lot. The cohort of new uh, academics working in the Netherlands, working at the university in the same department, really helped in easing the transition because... Uh, one thing that what ha- what happened was we co-produced a document about settling into Amsterdam. Really? Yeah, and, and it was Meredith, uh, one of those the first who came in, and we would start documenting our own experiences. Like, if you have, have this visa uh, from this country, you have to do this. Uh, if you're looking for uh, an apartment. So we were documenting all our struggles and our practices to overcome it. 
and uh, we've started sharing it to the new hires as well, and and even lobbied for the human resources, the HR, to have this document. And uh, apparently, like uh, a lot of my new colleagues found our working document on Google Docs more important and more helpful than the one that was produced by HR. So I, I think this is something that I think is an important insight to what people can do, like in terms of moving to new cultures like build your own community, but at the same time, try to also uh, link up to your existing communities. I love this because it shows that you can create kind of community and curate your own community, uh, different communities that allow you to kind of, you know, thrive in a new country. And I also like this whole notion of kind of collectively, without help from the institution, creating kind of a resource kit um, that you can then pass on, right? Because it seems as though sometimes, actually frequently, institutions are really at a loss when dealing with like scholars coming from different countries with different passports. And on that, can we talk a little bit about this notion of being an international scholar and, you know, something that I've been noticing and something that a previous guest of ours, Dr. Anya Kotileva, had talked about is this notion of like weaker versus stronger passports, right? And how for her coming into the UK, she's like, oh my gosh, like the number of paperwork I've had to provide to just prove that I am legitimately allowed to be here was really quite quite strenuous. Can you talk a little bit about that, especially since you've moved around a lot and what's that, what has that been like for you? I think I, I will start uh, when I was still in a PhD because I knew that this is going to be a struggle for me. So what I did was to be very strategic about the things that I do. That includes trying to collect as many stamps and visas as much as I can. So it's a way to oh. prove myself of a, a second. I'm a good, diligent international scholar that I don't overstay, that I've traveled to 20 other countries and they have already given me their stamp of approval. So in some ways, that's how I try to game the systems that to, to look like I'm a good immigrant in some ways, at least through these stamps. But what's interesting is that with being a student, you sort of embassies know that you will return to your contract because you have to finish your PhD. Well, when you're working, it's a little different. Where you come to work, uh. it's, it's a little different because then it becomes like, is he um, desirable to stay? I never had a, a problem coming to the Netherlands. I think what helped was I applied in the U.S., if I applied in the Philippines, it would have been a very different story, honestly. But applying from the U.S. made it very easy. And that's part of the sort of this strategy that I, I, I will use. Never apply from the Philippines because Philippines would also make it very difficult for you to leave. And embassies in the Philippines are trained to be very stringent on the requirements. So these are sort of things that, that I needed to sort of non-negotiables for me because if I flew from the Philippines, I would have like delayed my start of like three to four months um, easily. Uh, so that's that's really one important thing is like you have to learn the strategies to deal, become this good immigrant and look for ways to make it easier for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but what's interesting is a lot of my struggles now is really because I'm based in the Netherlands. I, uh, I have a passport of from the Philippines, and I think they're just not used to dealing with Philippine passport holders tra- mm. doing a lot of travels from Europe or from the Netherlands. Mm. And I, I can see this in three sort of like uh, the, the most difficult experiences that I have had. It's really 
when I'm based here. The first one is is when I was I, I, maybe I, I can revert back to the before coming to Amsterdam. It's really in the sure. U.S., which I, I mentioned okay. earlier. I came to the U.S. with a fellowship from Yale. And one of the conditions there was that I have to return to the Philippines. I, I think serve sort of the country and be in the Philippines for two years. And if I don't serve my residency, I won't. I cannot really find work in the U.S. And no one will. No one told me that there was this kind of condition. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like who imposed it, this condi- condition? Like, what? What was it? Was it the the university? Like, what? Like, I'm I'm confused. The funders? I, I think it's really U.S. law. Like, because it's I'm seen as you know being trained. It's like, like part of the development program. So I'm from oh. the global south. Like, I come to okay. the U.S. to be trained, and I need to return to the Philippines to serve my country. But it wasn't really in that context, right? Like, it's a different context. I came to 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 the U.S. as a scholar, and I, it's not really. The idea it's not really tied to aid. And no, th- this condition is is in my visa, and I had to really look it up because, like, what does this mean? It has certain conditions on certain professions and certain sectors, which include public administration, and public policy, and it's what? like, yes. Uh, so it means that I cannot. There are ways you can, you can circumscribe this. I think uh, I've read enough to say that you can probably sue the U.S. government so that you can. <laughs> but who's find... going to do that, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so that is the one thing. It's like, oh, I, I literally, even if I choose to stay, I literally cannot stay in the U.S. No. because of this uh, condition. And I, I think being here, going back to my point of being an academic in the in Europe or in the Netherlands, the two most horrifying experiences I have is like applying for a UK and a Canadian visa. Oh, the U- really? UK visa, yeah. It, it, it's really, uh, well, the UK visa was mainly because they're not used to handling a lot of customers. Their their office in, in Singapore, for example, or in the Philippines would be like in big buildings because they're used to accommodating thousands of applications. Here, they're just not used to, I guess post-Brexit, maybe they're more used to it, but they're just not used to non-Europeans applying for UK visa. So they can only accommodate four people inside the office. And I think that was the most humanizing experience because we were waiting outside, three degrees cold, it was raining, it was a little after the storms, it was a little windy. So for one hour, at some point, some of the people queuing to get inside had to beg to to be asked to let in because it was really cold outside, and and it's like that was the most dehumanizing experience. Like I came to the Netherlands, I did my PhD, I'm, I'm now a full fledged academic, and it's like I had to queue under this in terrible the, in conditions. The snow or in, yeah, yeah. To to pr- fulfill my you know academic profession. And that for me is like, oh, I realized that I'm never going to go to the UK uh, again because I don't want to go through the same experience no. because it was just a terrible um, experience. And imagine, you know, I'm already privileged at this. Imagine if you're someone who's uh, not in the, the best position to apply. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that the second one and the most recent one is really applying for Canadian visa. Okay. And, and it's really ter- terrible in the sense that I applied in January for a conference in July. It's been five months that I, I haven't received any news about it. On, on the online portal, it says application submitted. 
they wouldn't even tell you when will you expect to get it. So you really cannot, you know, um, plan anything. And this is on top of all these requirements of... So Canadian visa application requires you to put in your employment record from the very first day that you can actually be employed. Oh, my uh, God. Up to the day. So I was uh, like, uh, why wasn't I moving? Uh, there was actually two days that I was technically unemployed in between my fellowship in the U.S. and my, my contract in Amsterdam. And, and I had to spot that two days make sure that it's filled in and co- declare that I was unemployed for two days. And that was like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize that, yeah, I was unemployed for a couple of days. And like, what does that mean, right? Like, would that, that mean, mean that it, it's a minus points for me to be an immigrant to, to Canada because I was unemployed? So I just don't know what it means. Like, you're always hyper aware of the smallest things now because you're, you've submitted a record of everything that you have to to governments, like to, to the Canadian government, the UK government. And also the amount of time, really, I have to spend uh. to apply. Australian visa would ask you to scan your passport and, and prove that you've been to these places. You know, you would declare that. How do you that, prove that? So the, the, once you stamp the passport, you have to scan it. So I yeah. have three passports. So I oh, scanned. Yes, yes, yes. All pages. And that's why it like, oh goes back to my point. Like, I want to be a good immigrant. So I went to all these countries, which yeah. turned out to be like a, dis- a disadvantage now because I have to prove that I've been there and I didn't overstay. So I, in each row, I would say that these are the t- times that I was in this country uh, proven by this visa stamp. And it's just ridiculous. Like, if I just spent three hours queuing for that UK visa, spent like two hours scanning, I could have used that for my research, right? Like, so there's just 100%. an extreme cost to being a, an international scholar. That makes me so upset because when you think about kind of these border regimes and this notion that you've got to protect your border by making sure that people can prove that they've been to all of these countries, can prove that they're not going to like, you know, present economic hardship by being there, right? It almost makes you think, well, as you've come to the conclusion, is it really worth it, right? But the irony is, um, you know, if you ask someone with a Canadian passport or who's always had a a stronger passport, right, um, they can come and enter countries at will, right? Um, It's not going to be an issue for them. It's just not something people really think about, but usually it's people with this much privilege. They're the ones who are setting uh, the standards for what competitive academic CVs look like. Also, there, there's another emotional aspect to it. Mm. Like, I don't know if you've been asked your research question in the immigration, but um, almost every time I go to the U.S., what, what's your research on? <laughs> it's a good way to practice my elevator pitch, but <laughs> but but it's like it's like do you really need to know at this point? Like, why do I have to always prove myself as a, as a worthy academic? from the application, even to crossing the border. And that for me is like, you know, I'm always feel, I feel like I'm always being tested. I'm always being monitored. And, and like when, and I would read articles saying like, oh, you know, researchers from the global South don't publish in top journals. And like, maybe let's talk about all these unfairness that we encounter in trying to engage in this global discourse. 
For sure. Um, final question. Uh, what advice would you give to our listeners, particularly listeners who share similar trajectories when it comes to navigating academia? Uh, a lot of our listeners are aware uh, that academia is really difficult, especially the job market. What advice would you give listeners who are trying to navigate this, trying to think of applying for jobs across different national contexts, but and, and also have, quote unquote, like global South passports that might make it harder uh, for them to gain traction in the job market. One thing that I wanted to share with people is like, so it's, it's a question that I've had fairly early in my career. And I think it goes back to the discussion about passports also. It's really this choosing an identity as who you are and, and for those, for people like me who were raised and born outside the Global North Academia, there's always this trade-off between being seen as a global scholar, someone who's really in this global conference circuit, someone who's really publishing in international journals versus a local scholar. That you could be trained maybe in the Global North, but you're actually engaged with a lot of discourse in local community. And I'm saying this because there's a trade-off. Like you can't be both. Unfortunately, I asked this in one of like to one of my role models. Can we mm. both be global and local scholar, especially if I publish in my own country, like about my own country? And so like, you really have to choose. The conversations are different. The and, and one thing that the an example that I have is like when we were trying to publish something from Brazil, the reviewer said the conversation has moved on. From, from from the kind of methods that we used. Uh, and I think, like, we haven't moved on. This is new. This is something that we no. haven't really explored. And it's like, why did you, like, whose who's conversation moved on? Uh, and, and, and really, I'm, I'm sort of an idealist that I, I want to say that there's really no trade-off being, between being a global and a local scholar. But reflecting on my own career, I felt like I found myself being increasingly sort of like dislocated from the local policy community. Uh, I worked um, in the government and really published based on my own experience. And now that I have to engage in global, you know, scholarly discourse, I always feel like I'm like moving away from my own identity as, as a local, as a Filipino scholar. So um, this is an advice that I would give. It's like sometimes you have to make a choice. It has to be somehow of a deliberate choice because if you try, I try to be both. I really made sure that I'm, I'm embedded in the local policy community, that I, for example, do consulting job in the Philippines. But now that I'm in the Netherlands, I can't just fly into the Philippines and do like a quick, you know, policy consulting gig. I really have to make sure that now that I'm sort of in the global market, that I have to continue myself as keep myself as a global scholar. So it has to be clear for you. Unfortunately, there, there probably needs to be trade-off uh, and and be, 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 be sort of content with that choice. Uh, it will always come back to haunt you, like for me. Uh, mm. But I think it's uh, going back to uh, my point, it's really about finding your community and building your community with intent Second is really looking for that role model, someone who would mm -hmm. actually try to build you, who would believe in you, who would make sure that you have the resources to become the best person that you can be. And I think that is 
a process too. Like your supervisor doesn't have to be your mentor. You mm. can find mentors outside. And even within now that I'm in 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 the academic community, I'm always in the constant search for mentors. Like mm. people who can actually fight for you, who will champion for you. Like it's it's you're not really your best your own uh, best champion. People can be your other people can be the best champion. And I think the third one is like how should I say this? I think always think of your work as public service. Mm. And you're not just working for the global academic community. You're somehow working for your local community back home. Because it's something that I've been asked about. It's like, should when when do I plan to return? And mm. and it it's also it also goes back to the question of like who am I as a scholar, global or mm. a local scholar? Because if you have a weak passport, you're naturally sort of tempted to change passports, right? People have been telling me like, oh, why don't you just change your passports? Like, why don't you just marry Dutch? It's like, <laughs> it's not a solution, right? It's not a solution. And so, like that's that's why I, I'm suggesting people to be more public service oriented because. If, if public service is the main thrust or if your main goal, then these kinds of solutions of your changing passports will not be a natural solution. Like it's it like for me, I, I like to keep a weak passport and try to engage as much as I can with global discourse. I will find a way to make it better, but I think this one allows me to survive through all these struggles and obstacles, right? So yeah, finding that public service orientedness is very crucial to any international scholar who are really tempted to go back and make it easier. Those are really profound words to end on, really quite poignant, actually. And I think what you've expressed to me that I'm going to be thinking about and marinating over is the global local divide, but also the conflicts and the struggle that it's still eliciting in you, right? Um, And also some of the strategic choices that you've had to make while also being adamant that you're going to keep, quote unquote, the weaker passport because you want to retain the public service role of your work. Thank you so, so much, Tito Kichi. Like, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Tito Eto. I can't help but think about how Kichi's experiences resonate with some of her previous episodes around what it's like to be an international scholar. Check out episode 29 with Martha Balaguerra or episode 32 with Anya Kutaleva, for example. So let's remember that for those with, as Kishi says, a weaker passport, i.e. one where you need to apply for a visa before entry into a country, there are different norms, different border regulations, and different structural issues at play that make the academic journeys of quote-unquote international scholars far more challenging than those who are citizens in the countries where they work. And that's season three of Academic Antis. That's right. I cannot believe we've done 21 episodes this season, but we did it. And it's only been possible because of you, dear listeners. Thank you so much for your feedback, your ideas, and your kind words about the show. We're going to take a short break for the rest of the summer, but we will be back. There's still so much more to talk about. While we're away, please stay in touch. Go to academicantiescom support to find out how you can help keep this pod going, including becoming a Patreon supporter. All of your generous donations helps us cover our production costs. 
If you want to connect, you can reach us at podcast at academicantis.com. On Mastodon, you can find us at academicantis at mass.to. On threads, we're at, at academicantis. And yeah, we're still on that other platform while it lasts. Get in touch with us on Twitter, or is it now called X? <laughs> at, at Academic Auntie. Today's episode of Academic Aunties was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Wayne Chu, and Dr. Anisha Nath. We'll be back soon with more Academic Aunties. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.